One of the most fascinating things about the internet and about social media in particular is how it can create combinations of industries you'd never have imagined. And it can turn those combinations into viable businesses and lucrative careers and stumble right into a cesspool of ethical issues in the process. All of that is to say welcome to the world of Instagram surgeons. These doctors are influencers and not necessarily in their fields of study. They have mastered the art of turning their cosmetic surgery practices into viral content. And one of their elite practices here in Canada. They have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers. They show before and after photos of breast augmentations and tummy tucks and butt lifts. But they also show the surgeries themselves. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna bring this point there, close it up, then we're gonna bring the belly button together and just gonna have a little vertical line. Sometimes we'll have a little vertical line. In graphic detail, while they narrate the procedures and sometimes while they comment on the people they're working on. They do this, they say, with the consent of their patients, except not all of those patients see it that way. And that's where the story begins. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Catherine Laidlaw is a reporter based in Toronto who investigated the world of The Real Dr. Six for Wired magazine. Hello, Catherine. Hi. Why don't you start for people who um, don't pay attention to the world of of Instagram cosmetic surgery? Um, Who is The Real Dr. Six? Yeah, so The Real Dr. Six is a man named Martin Eugenberg. He's a, a doctor, plastic surgeon who lives in Toronto, and he operates out of a clinic that's located in the Royal York Hotel. Some of your listeners might know it's a pretty iconic building in the city. And he has had a a rough couple of years in his practice, I would say. He's been investigated by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario for unprofessional conduct, and he's also facing a potential, a proposed class action lawsuit. from some of his former patients who are unhappy with how he has treated them while they've been in the clinic or or how he's used their images on his social media presence which is which is quite active so he's quite active on Instagram on the under the handle real doctor 6 and also on Snapchat um where he posts before and after photos and also um films live surgeries uh, and posts them in all their sort of unflinching detail. Can you maybe describe um, a little bit more for those of us who haven't seen it, uh, what his Instagram and Snapchat are like? Like, what's the tone? um, What kinds of stuff does he do? uh, All that stuff. Yeah, so um, the tone varies a little bit, and I think that's part of... um, where some of the issues in this story come up. But he uh, says that he intends the tone to be educational, transparent, authentic look at what plastic surgery can really do. And that includes both the success stories and then also the limits of the industry. Um, He'll post 
sort of side-by-side pictures of celebrities analyzing the kind of work that they may have had done. He'll post memes sometimes. Um, He'll sort of do instructional videos sometimes about different types of breast implants that people could consider um, what he'd recommend. He does Q&As with other surgeons, one of whom calls himself Dr. Miami, and he's quite famous um, for sort of spearheading this social media approach in the industry. He will also sort of do happy patient posts, which is when he um, posts sort of selfies or or um, after photos of his patients displaying their different body parts um, in, in ways that they are happy with. You know, a picture of like a, a particularly etched uh, set of abs on a torso or, you know, even just yesterday there was, um, he'd uh, done a tummy tuck procedure for a woman who had children and posted sort of quite an artistic actually photo of, of her that she had posted to Instagram as well. So there's a real range, but you really sort of get a sense of his personality and what he's aiming for in his practice. You mentioned uh, Dr. Miami and other surgeons who do this. Can you explain a little bit about the rise of this style of surgeon and you know, where they came from and how did uh, Dr. Miami begin it? Um, Down in Florida, there is a doctor named Michael Salzhauer. Um, He calls himself Dr. Miami and has for years. And back in sort of 2014, like he was very, very early adopter of Instagram and has a, a big, vibrant, flamboyant personality. And, and so was using social media to sort of show both that side of things. And then also he really wanted to sort of dispel some of the myths, I think, that had sprung up around plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, and and some of the stigma, I think, as well. And um, so he was actually, as far as I know, the first plastic surgeon to use Instagram to show live surgeries. And it really caught on. Like at first he um, sort of got a thousand followers, then a couple thousand. And, and by the time he had gotten to 90,000 followers, um, that was in early 2015, Instagram shut his account down for nudity content. So his 15-year-old daughter, who um, is his eldest, suggested um, that he try Snapchat because that's what all her friends were doing. And it really stuck. So he decided he would hire a social media manager um, around that same time. He hired a couple and um, his following exploded and it's now over a million. Um, And they just started really, really having fun with it. Like I would say Dr. Miami's content is sort of like the most outrageous of Dr. Six's content all the time. Um, Like we've had uh, rappers come into the OR, like comment as Dr. Miami is performing surgery. He like breaks out into dance in the OR. They play trap music. He's done, I think, different partnerships with like different musicians. He's been in music videos. Hmm. He's faced some degree of controversy. During the pandemic, he was doing like drive-by Botox injections. Like he... What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like it's... um, He's he's really known for like he's become a character in in him in and of himself. If that makes sense. And so, okay, um, what he and his social media coordinators decided to do was start a consulting business. Like maybe if there was this much interest in his work, 
there would be interest in other surgeons' work. Like maybe this was a model that he could sell not just to his patients, but to his colleagues. And Martin Eugenberg was one of his earlier clients. They'd met at a conference. Um, Eugenberg had also been a really early adopter of the internet in various ways, even back in med school. And so I think when he saw what Dr. Miami was doing, he was really intrigued by the possibility of reaching so many people. And so he went down to Miami, paid for a training session, and and then also pays for uh, ongoing social media promotion on Dr. Miami's platforms. And there are, I believe it's 15 right now. There's a, a, there's a group of 15 surgeons and they call themselves the Dr. Miami squad. There's one in Long Island, one uh, in Baltimore, different. There's one in San Francisco and they all have these sort of names like Dr. Be Fixing, Dr. Feel Good, things like that. Um, and, and they have sort of t-shirts made with their emote, like memojis all gathered in a group and things like this. Like it's a very um, branded thing, I want to say. And so they're, they're all sort of performing this way on social media, as well as um, being doctors, being surgeons. So, so far, this all sounds um, strange and maybe a little weird, but above board and just a, an interesting way to approach cosmetic surgery. But we should just start with you kind of telling me the stories of a couple of his patients uh, that you talked to to get a sense of where these problems kind of come from. Maybe I'll start with a woman that I talked to named Sarah. She was a personal trainer. And um, once she uh, sort of passed the age of 40, she found that she was feeling really insecure about the way her midsection looked, that the exercise that she used to sort of be able to stay fit with wasn't working as well. And and that was maybe a result of aging. And so she gave it a lot of thought and she decided that she would do liposuction. But she felt really, I don't know if ashamed of that choice, but she she deeply wanted to keep it private. She told her husband and her best friend and and no one else that she was even having this surgery. And so when the clinic asked her if she'd give permission to have them um, shoot it and, and display it on social media channels, she said no, because it was counter to sort of entire ethos that she was approaching this with. So she went through consultation process. She paid for the surgery. And um, then when she was in pre-op, um, heading into the operating room, and I mean, I think I've never had major invasive surgery, but liposuction is a major invasive surgery, and I sort of tried to imagine what my state of mind would be going into a surgery, and um, they asked her before the surgery started if she'd reconsider social media, and she acquiesced. And, uh, she just said that they'd want, she wanted them to cover her face. And so when she woke up, she was groggy and thinking about whether or not they'd actually shown her face on, on the Instagram stories. So she watched it and she said it was, it was horrifying to hear, um, her doctor sort of banter about her body 
with his social media assistant while she was on the table unconscious. He sort of commented on the the elasticity that her skin likely would never have again and that she was tanned and tanning was one of the worst things you could do for your skin. Um, she felt totally embarrassed. He had her sliced open on the table. Why was he also sort of body shaming her at the same time? And um, I think she deeply regretted saying yes in that moment. Um, in another instance, a woman I spoke to, Laura, found that he had used one of her personal Instagram photos to sort of display like one of his happy patient testimonials. Um, and she asked him to take it down. And she says that he refused to do that. Another story of women that I spoke to who we uh, called Anna in the story. Um, she went in for a follow-up appointment and he, in her recollection, sort of used that appointment as a way of educating his followers, but but really didn't give her any care or attention. Um, and she was angered by that. Um, and and so those are just three of um, a couple hundred stories that have come out now. So there is a pattern here. Yeah. I, I mean, in my view, there is. And, and speaking with you know, more patients than just the three that we focused on in the story. Um, definitely there's a pattern of, of what I would say, um, prior, maybe prioritizing performance over care is I think how a lot of these patients felt. Do we have an idea how common that is? And I'm not asking for like, Oh, what percentage or anything, but it, are these, uh, Concerns and complaints being made about Dr. Eugenberg. Is this something that has happened to, uh, you know, Dr. Miami or the rest of, what is it, the Dr. Miami squad? That's a good question. So I know that Dr. Miami has um, come under a little bit of fire from his own regulatory body, but it wasn't because of a patient concern. It was because of a music video that he did that they considered unprofessional conduct. And that was some years ago. That said, I think one thing that does make a difference here is that the other members of the Dr. Miami squad are operating in the States, right? They have different rules, different regulations and allow sort of more, let's say like creativity in those respects. Um, but I am not aware of any other issues with informed consent with those doctors and those patients. And that's not something that is different in Canada and the States. And so, yeah, I think we see a pattern with this clinic of issues of consent coming up, certainly. So what happens next to adjudicate this? And what has uh, Dr. Eugenberg said in his defense? Because, you know, it's a really interesting question. On the one hand, everything that you've just described sounds really sleazy, like at best. On the other hand, they did all sign those waivers, right? Yes. And I, I do think part of what has made this story take up so much real estate in my head is the fact that on the one hand, you have group of patients who say that they didn't feel like they could truly give consent or they didn't feel like there was really an option. And on the other hand, you have a doctor who says he's operating with these values of like educating people on the the limits of what's possible and and wanting to show what real bodies look like rather than these like photoshopped images that we are force fed in all these other ways. And like I do think that on its face, the idea of educating people about authenticity 
in physicality is, is a good thing for society. I'm just not sure that that's what's actually happening here. Um, and so two things are going on. One is that a couple of years ago now, a journalist um, posed as a patient and, and went to the clinic in the Royal York as part of a story about breast implant marketing. She visited a few different clinics, and this was one of them. And she noticed that there was a surveillance camera in a room where she was told to take her clothes off. She reported it. And the College of Physicians and Surgeons started an investigation. And then while that was going on, they also investigated another allegation from uh, another reporter, actually, that Dr. Eugenberg had allowed a film crew to shoot a patient's procedure without her consent. And the footage of her body aired on TV. And nine months after that surgery happened, um, Eugenberg added a line to her chart saying she had consented. And so this past summer, there was a disciplinary hearing that dealt with those two allegations. So the way that those are adjudicated in Ontario is that um, a panel of your peers, a panel of doctors hears the case and um, delivers a verdict. So they found that Eugenberg engaged in professional misconduct, but haven't meted out a penalty yet. That's happening actually in a few days on February 1st. In the in the civil court realm, this proposed action, proposed class action lawsuit, the, there's a hearing in April um, before a judge will decide if there is enough evidence in the case to move it forward. And usually what they're looking for in those types of cases is a pattern. I do know that more than 200 patients have come forward since last November when they um, announced that they were looking at filing an action. Um, and so I will be watching to see what happens. But in terms of consequence, we don't know yet. Would any of those consequences include um, losing his right to practice? I'm just trying to get a sense of the stakes for him right now. For sure. So um, the CPSO, which is the regulatory body, that had the disciplinary hearing, that, that is uh, a possibility. Um, and they, it would be them who would revoke that license from him. I, yeah, I'm not sure that that's going to be the penalty in this case. Um, that has tended to happen in, in really, really severe cases, at least that I'm aware of in Ontario. For example, a doctor in Ottawa who, you know, inseminated his patients with his own sperm at a sperm clinic. He got his license revoked, but um, certainly it would be within their power. And, um, you know, penalties can range from fines to uh, temporary license suspension to restrictions on what someone is able to do in their practice to, yeah, having their license revoked. And so I think um, he's probably not sure how that's going to go. And and this week is is um, not necessarily going to decide that, like at the penalty hearing, the both sides sort of present what they think would be a fair penalty. And then the panel takes more time to actually um, render a decision. And so that I think will likely happen sometime in the spring. But um, at least on February 1st, we should have a sense of what consequence both sides think is a fair one. Last question. Has um, this doctor's social media behavior changed at all since uh, these problems began piling up. I guess this coincides with the pandemic because he's probably not doing surgeries now too. But but is there any acknowledgement of, you know, the way at, at the very least uh, some of his patients were reacting to 
um, the kinds of stuff he was doing. No. And that was something that surprised me. So I started working on the story last January and started um, what I would call sort of like an intensive year-long study of social media presence of this doctor in this clinic. And um, the only change that I noticed is that occasionally now below photos, he will post that the patient consented to their photo being shared. And aside from that, it has continued business as totally normal. Pandemic aside, I will say, so he is operating now. He has received the COVID vaccine. Really? Yep. He Instagrammed that experience. Um, That's a whole other podcast on how he got the vaccine. Yeah. I mean, he has hospital privileges at Humber River. Um, So the clinic is open um, and he has continued to film surgeries. He is doing consultations virtually now. So there have been certainly some changes to his practice, but the social media presentation has sort of continued apace. Um, He certainly hasn't addressed any of the like legal or disciplinary proceedings on social media. But I mean, that's not entirely surprising to me. I Uh would think that would be um, extremely ill-advised. But I I do remember sort of thinking like, that's so strange that it seems like nothing has changed. And I think at the end of the story, the the magazine story that I wrote, I flick at that a little bit where he's sort of presenting himself as, as being the one who's doing the most authentic work when there's all of this stuff behind the scenes that you would never know if you were just following him on social media. Catherine, thank you uh, for taking us inside this uh, very strange world. And I guess we'll see what happens in February. For sure. Thank you. Catherine Laidlaw writing for Wired Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Every single episode we have ever done can be found there. There are more than 600 of them by now. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, TheBigStoryPodcast. That's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Don't send any pictures of your cosmetic surgery. I cannot watch those videos. I got so squeamish just researching this story. And as always, we're in your podcast feed, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify, you pick. Find us, rate us, review us, tell your friends, you know the deal. Claire Broussard, Ryan Clark, and Stephanie Phillips produce the big story. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Stay safe this weekend, stay warm, and we'll talk on Monday.